0: Are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Colin Hill, he's a professor in the School of Microbiology. At university college in cork ireland and he works on bacteriophages and uh, bacteriocins we'll get into that uh, so colin thanks for coming
2: thanks for having me
1: yeah tell me about your research what are you what are you working on
2: Well, i'm a microbiologist as you said and uh, we study bacteria obviously mainly and what i'm really interested in is how bacteria behave in different situations and one of the things that bacteria encounter all the time of course are other microbes, other bacteria, and they may want to talk to them, they may, may want to kill them, they may, may want to mate with them. And they encounter bacteriophages, which are bacterial viruses, which also may want to, to kill them or may want to kind of partner up with them to um, carry on and evolve together as a, as a partnership. So, all of those things interest me. How do bacteria encounter other microbes? And how do they behave in those situations?
1: Yeah, i we're learning some about bacteria. It's really interesting. Um, like, for instance, I I've thought, I guess, naively that each bacteria just had one phage that, you know, interacts with it. But, you know, the bacteria that you studied, like how many different phages uh, comprise their phageome or you know, how many yeah. phages interact with them?
2: I wish we knew. I mean, for some, for bacterium like E. coli, which is, you know, the standard workhorse of most microbiology labs and is present in the gut of everyone listening to this, uh, there must be, you know, literally thousands, if not millions potentially of different phages that infect them. And these range from tiny little uh, viruses of three or four KB single-stranded RNA to phages of 500 KB double-stranded DNA. Some phage genomes are actually bigger than the smaller bacterial genome, so the range is just incredible. There's filamentous phage, there's phage with heads and tails, circular phage, there's enveloped phage. The diversity really is almost beyond our imagining.
1: Oh, so what? Which particular bacteria do you study? I mean, there's so many. Um, are there certain ones you focus on?
2: There are. I mean, I'm particularly interested in the bacteria that live in the gut because we're. I work here in in Cork at. APC Microbiome Ireland, one of the largest microbiome research centers in the world. And so we're very interested in the gut bacteria, the way gut bacteria interact with one another, but of course, more importantly, how they interact with us to influence human health. And then what we're trying to do, of course, is look at those bacteria in the context of the fact that they're swimming in a sea of phage. And so I think every bacterium, when it wakes up in the morning or when it buds off from another bacterium and becomes a An entity has two concerns. One is finding food, sufficient food to create enough energy to replicate itself. And the other is avoiding bacteriophages or bacterial viruses. It's been estimated that, you know, there are more bacterial viruses on earth than any other creature, including the the bacteria. And that about half of all the bacteria on earth are killed every two days by a bacterial virus. So Bacterial viruses are a major influence in the life of a bacteria, and a lot of bacterial behavior then is about evading attack and overcoming attack by bacterial viruses.
1: Yeah, if I if I shrunk you down and put you in, in a, someone's gut, what would, what would you experience if you were the size of a bacteria? It just it seems like a storm of, of activity. Like, what do you think it's like for yeah for a you, bacteria inside our gut?
2: You probably, it, it depends on on where in the gut and in which Um, domain within the gut, if you're in the lumen, the kind of liquid part of the gut, then you're probably in the presence of many brothers and sisters because you didn't pop out of nowhere. You're you're a descendant of an initial bacterium or bacteria that got into the gut and you're descended from those. But There's probably lots of your relatives around and you're surrounded then as well by, again, thousands, if not millions of other types of microbes. And you're relying on your ability to outcompete these neighbors and friends. And usually your, your biggest enemy is your closest relative because what you can eat, it can eat. Uh, you're, you're not really worried about a bacterium that's nearby that can digest, you know, mucus. If you can't digest mucus, you might even be able to digest some of the byproducts of it digesting mucus. So you might be quite happy to have other bacteria around which are not competing for the same resource. But the ones that are actively competing for the same resource as you. They're, they're something you've really got to worry about. And that's where the second kind of area we work in uh, comes into play, which is the bacteriocins. These are very small antimicrobial peptides, essentially antibiotics, which are produced by one bacterium which kills another. And very often those are very narrow spectrum. They, they really only want to kill the related bacteria or bacteria which are likely to be competing for the same niche. So if I was yeah, bacterial size in the gut. And I looked around me, I'd see lots of things that look like me, um, but I'd really have my antenna out looking for any bacterial viruses that might be present. I'd be desperately trying to kill things that are nearby that are competing for the same niche and desperately trying to avoid, of course, being killed by those bacteria, which, uh, you know, regard me as their enemy. So you
1: know, we have smell, touch, taste, you know, sight, etc. What do you think the sensory apparatus of a bacteria
2: is I think it's pretty extraordinary really for a single cell you know these things are tiny they're about a micron varies a little bit but about a micron in size millionth of a meter and they are just their surfaces are covered with receptors and proteins that can bind to things and trigger responses within the cell It'd Be a mistake to think that a cell can think or it can, um, rationalize any situation, but it's, it's evolved to a point where there's very little difference between it thinking and it reacting in the right way. Because these bacteria, remember the bacteria in our bodies, we're, I don't know, we're, I don't know when humans evolved as as what we would consider to be modern humans, but it's certainly within, the, within hundreds of thousands of years, bacteria have been around for 3 billion years. And so they're really prepared and they've evolved to react appropriately to almost anything you can throw at them. And I think where bacteria really come into their own is when you stop thinking about them as a single cell. And it's a human thing to individualize everything. You you know, you start to yourself with if you were a bacterium. But I think it's, you know, we don't think of ourselves as cells. We think of ourselves as a collection of all our human cells. I think it makes most sense to think of bacteria as, you know, the colony or the group of cells of similar genetic uh, background, so that, you know, if there's a billion E. coli cells and, and something happens, there's always going to be at least some of those, bank, those E. coli cells that have kind of pre-adapted already to that condition. They've already switched on something that they don't really need, but they might need. There'll be others that won't have switched it on, and there'll be some that have switched on different things. And so in that way, they, they can appear to behave very intelligently, And it's hard to kind of capture that intelligence if you think of them as single cells.
1: Well, maybe because they're in biofilm form a lot, maybe there's an emergence, you know, emergent properties of biofilms. Maybe they have a, yeah, they can contribute to a hive mind and let's say a, you know, a biofilm can do sensing that individual bacteria couldn't and have coordinated action.
2: Yeah, exactly. I I think, you know, if you took an individual human neuron, it would have no intelligence whatsoever it, it couldn't do anything really it can't do very much but you connect it up to all its neighboring neurons and suddenly this thing we call intelligence almost appears out of that and i think the same is true with bacteria most bacteria um, probably spend most of their lives in very close contact with lots of other microbes and other bacteria and we're not clever enough yet to kind of see that intelligence that probably emerges from those interactions
1: Is how do bacteria know Whether they're in biofilm status or just solo, you know, who's a friend, who's a foe, who's a training partner?
2: Well, again, I think thinking at the level of the single cell, it's very hard to to know whether bacteria know anything or whether they need to discriminate. If you're a bacterium in a particular environment, in a particular biome, as we now tend to call them, and you want to digest a particular sugar, and there are other bacteria in the same environment that need to digest the same sugar, then, you know, they're your enemies. And what you have to do is be better at either binding that sugar, taking it up, metabolize it more quickly so you can uh, take up more, grow more quickly, or of course, kill the other guys who are, produce, who are trying to consume the same sugar as you. It's something, again, that will have evolved. Any bacteria which becomes marginally better at taking up a sugar than its competitors will begin to dominate that environment and therefore will evolve, pass down its genes, you know, it's evolution in the raw, but it, it happens in very short periods of time.
1: You know, if I'm going to be a trading partner with someone, you know, let's say they, you know, I don't know, ourselves, you know, and I get molecules of sugar and I make, uh, I don't know, vitamin B or something, how do I know the unit of exchange? Like, do you think that there could be bacterial economics? Like, you know, again, how do I know for every molecule of sugar, I should make three molecules of some short chain fatty acid as opposed to 10 or a million?
2: Yeah, again, and mostly it's, it's just hardwired in, you know, the um, evolution is, is absolutely brutal and, and we'll just keep selecting over and over. But when you think that a bacterium can double every 20 minutes, let's say, or 30 minutes, then within a matter of hours, you can go from one bacteria to millions. And that means you can try a lot of things. You know, if you were going to have a million children, you could probably be guaranteed one of them's going to win a Nobel Prize at some point. If you've only one or two, yeah, that's not going to happen. And a bacterium can say, well, if I have a million offspring within a matter of a, a hours, then chances are one of those is going to be better at doing whatever it is that's needed to survive in this environment. And that one will win. And so, again, the, the human terms of intelligence and knowing and even human terms like you know learning, I think they all happen in the bacterial world, but they're probably poor descriptors for what the bacteria are doing. They're just competing. I think competing is what bacteria are best at doing.
1: You know, it'd be interesting if you had like a way to feed bacteria, like from a little, a tiny little machine, and you had them in a in a closed space. And you know, every time the bacteria, you know, spit out a sugar, a sugar molecule and say, and the bacteria makes something in return, and then you you mess with it. You know it, it has to put out a certain number of molecules before the feeder will spit out sugar. And I wonder if you could train or hone a bacteria's yeah. response somehow. Or or if you put two competing, you know, bacteria in a little dish and did that. I wonder if you'd see um, some kind of adaptation or race to the bottom, you know, like they'd make it for the least amount of sugar one of the bacteria. Yeah, I
2: think that's those are great ideas. And things like that have been done. You can you can put bacteria into kind of steady state fermenters where you can Put, get them so they're replicating almost in perfect synchrony because you're providing exactly the right amount of energy at the right temperature with the right conditions for the bacteria to just replicate in perfect synchrony. And then you can just start introducing little pulses of variation into that and watch how the bacteria respond and react to it. It's fascinating stuff, it really is an amazing, I mean, microbes are fabulous because you can just grow up billions, trillions in a morning do your experiment and then just grow them up again the next day and try again if it didn't work. You know, the speed of microbiology is amazing.
1: So what, what's your focus particularly? You're looking at the bacteria sins or, you know, what do you, like what kind of research projects you have going right now?
2: Well, what we're interested in is we do believe like many believe now that the microbiome, the, the microbes, all of the microbes that occupy the human body, every surface of the human body, that they play a very significant role in our health. We're beginning to regard them almost as an organ, Uh, just like your liver, kidney, brain. It's about the same weight as the liver. It has about the same metabolic capacity as the liver if you put all your bacteria together. But the interesting thing about this organ is you didn't have it when you were born, you acquired it. And you acquired it largely if you were born uh, by natural birth, you acquired it largely from your mother. And then your mother would have um, used breast milk, which would have particular sugars that. You as a baby can't digest, but your bacteria are very good at digesting. So one of your mother's first concerns was making sure you developed this organ and, and developed it in a robust fashion and, and as healthy an organ if you want as possible. And but the great thing about this organ, I mean, you have it now, it's it's a part of you. Yours is different from mine and different from everybody else's, but it's exactly the, the one you need right now as a result of your lifestyle today, but it's still manipulable. So, you know, if you get a kidney disease or a liver disease, the options are relatively um, dramatic. You can get transplants, you can maybe go on some very uh, harsh medicines, but it should be possible, even in a well-established microbiome, to still make changes. Changes for the better, obviously, of course, is what we'd always like to do. And we believe that phage and bacteriocins, because they are molecules that can shape bacterial populations, that we can use them to kind of sculpt the microbiome a bit. Now we're in very early days, but our, our dreams are that we can go in and maybe treat uh, dysfunctional microbiomes and restore functionality to them. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. The microbiome has been linked to things like obesity, which of course is a major issue. Now, most people think, well, obesity, we all know what causes obesity is just eating too much. but your microbiome plays a really significant role in that because your microbiome dictates how much energy you can harvest from the food you eat and so two people with different microbiomes and identical weight could eat the same amount of food and exactly the same uh, types of food and one might put on weight and another wouldn't and so if we could go in and manipulate the microbiome in a very precise way i mean antibiotics go in and, and they you know just like dropping a depth charge into the microbiome but If we could use these very narrow spectrum scalpels rather than the explosive power of an antibiotic, we think we could win to shape the microbiome and improve human health through that. So that's our kind of blue skies objective, is helping people uh, to maintain health and restore health by deliberately sculpting their microbiome.
0: Yeah,
1: like a lot of your examples, I'm I'm picturing like a swarm organ, like, I don't know, like Millions of birds or I don't know, it's like it's just swarming and moving and morphing, but it's an organ, it's coalescing and it's, hmm. it's functioning. And the death charge is good too because it doesn't destroy the whole thing, but it, it kind of kills an area and then other bacteria may rush in to fill it. So it changes the composition of the microbiome by doing that.
2: Yeah, so, the outcome of dumping in antibiotics and most people will recover, their microbiomes will recover to a, a point where they're, look pretty similar to they looked what, before the antibiotic went in. But of course we're missing a lot of detail there. You know, we're getting the kind of gross overall picture, but there's almost certainly been damage that has not been restored. We use the analogy sometimes, you know, all these bacteria within your your microbiome, they have roles. And what we do is we just, we name the bacteria, but that's not very useful. What we should really be doing is naming their functions. So if you consider a society, like Ireland, like the US, like anywhere, then to describe the society by just naming the individuals that live in that society wouldn't really tell you very much. It might give you a sense of gender balance or something like that. But if you started to name their functions, you know, if you said, in our society, we have 1% of our population work in the health service and 1% work in in the police force and 2% work in civil service and so on. And in your society, then you could get start getting a sense of the differences between societies and how functional they're likely to be and whether any of those functions are missing and then you could maybe go about replacing those functions pruning the ones of which you've too much adding in the ones which are you're lacking but as microbiologists as scientists we just love naming things and, and saying i have e coli you have e coli therefore we both have e coli but Your E. coli could have enzymes and genes and properties, which means they're doing a very different job in you than my E. coli are doing in me. So we really need to get down to describing what the bacteria are doing, not who they are.
1: Yeah, it seems like the microbiome is like a job center. and That's why you can have different kinds of uh, bacteria fulfill the same job, theoretically.
2: Exactly. And and I think there are niches, just like a job center, you know, your microbiome almost certainly is lacking some functions, just as your genome is lacking some functions. You know, all of us carry some mutations in our human genomes and you're inevitably going to be missing some functions in your microbiome. And hopefully they're trivial enough that you're not really suffering any health defects because of it. But if a bacterium happened to wander through you, through your diet or exposure to another individual, that could fill that niche, it almost certainly will occupy that niche then and find a home within your microbiome. If you already have that function, chances are that bacterium will just pass on through. So it isn't very much like a job center. You're constantly advertising and recruiting and trying to recruit new members to your microbiome to, to give you the most balanced microbiome possible.
1: You said that my E. coli would be different from yours. So hmm. does it even make sense to think of something as a given strain or like like, if I look at a, a colony of bees, you know, you have the drones, the queen, the workers, et cetera. They're all bee, but they're all different phenotypes of bee. So, I mean, should we look at it that way? Like, a, an E. coli, let's say, you know, there's I don't know, probably thousands of different variants of it. Yeah. Can you consider it maybe like a swarm organism? Each, def-
2: each bacteria? Yeah, I, I think, again, we're coming from it depends on where you're coming from. If I take an E. coli from you and grow it on an egg or plate, grows as a single colony, then every E. coli in that colony came from an initial single cell. And so the level of relationship between them is going to be extraordinarily high. There'll be some very tiny uh, amount of mutation as they grow, because that's just what happens when you replicate uh, any organism, is you get some mutations every now and then. But that group of E. coli will be highly related. So if they're all living in a test tube together, I think it makes sense to call that a strain of E. coli, and to characterize what that strain can and cannot do. But if I was just to look at the E. coli in your gut, you probably have, you know, descendants of many different strains. And sometimes we talk about, you know, E. coli has a particular genome, but then there'd be the E. coli pan genome, the much larger genome that all E. coli share. So E. coli might have, you know, 5,000 genes, but there might be 20, 30, 40,000 genes in the E. coli pangenome. So any given E. coli can kind of sample from that larger pangenome and then exhibit the properties of its own particular genome. But its genome is just a subset of the larger pangenome. So in one sense, it makes sense to talk about strains when you've purified them and you're growing them, like let's say you're growing a probiotic bacterium, that is an individual strain that you've purified and you're growing it as a single strain. But looking at those same bacteria in the wild, in their natural environment, talking about strains makes much less sense.
1: Well, it's like people, You know, if someone's a human being, are they uh, you know, an Irish human being? Are they an American human being? Are they an African human being? But they all are, they all have variants in their genes, and you know, but they're all humans.
2: Exactly, I mean, if you see that, you know, uh, Carl Lewis can run 100 meters in nine point whatever seconds, and then you assume, well, Colin, you're also a human, so I assume you can do the same. You'd be very, very far from the truth. You know, the the amount of um, properties that humans can exhibit, if you took all 7 billion of us, you know, it's such a range that there is no single human that can do a fraction of what humanity can do, and I think the same is true of bacteria. There is no E. coli that can do all of what E. coli are capable of doing, but it has particular talents and a particular genome that gives it a particular set of abilities
1: and i guess in bacteria it goes a lot further though so you know okay so if i'm an e coli in my gut and then you know i have a certain job and i can produce certain things but if i you know if i leave my gut and i go into yours how different will i be like um i'm still an e coli but you know will i produce different molecules like what will happen to my phageome when i go into your gut i mean will i be You know how different would the environment be? Do you think I would live, or I'd be, I'd be killed for some reason? Like, what do you think would happen?
2: I think it depends on the state of my gut. I mean, if you came in soon after I'd had antibiotic treatment, or if you came in soon after I was born, or if you came in and you know you were particularly good at breaking down fiber, and I hadn't really had a high fiber diet to this point in my life, and then I decided to switch to a high fiber diet, you know, it could be that you come into a, a kind of an underoccupied niche, like in a baby are a damaged niche, like with antibiotics, are a changing niche, and then you might find a home pretty quickly. But I suspect that most of your E. coli couldn't battle my E. coli unless one of those things has changed, unless one of those parameters has changed and and the microbiome is in some kind of state of flux.
1: Okay. Again, I like the example, though, of thinking of bacteria as uh, as like the human race. It, It makes it more understandable to me, at least.
2: Yeah, you know, if you dumped the whole human race at the foot of Mount Everest and said, okay, get up, get up to the top, how many of us could do it? You know, literally a handful, but there are humans that can do it. And if you just said, if you said, we'll only feed people who can get to the top of Mount Everest, then, you know, come back in a billion years and most people would be absolutely capable of climbing Mount Everest. You've just, you've put down that challenge and you've asked evolution to meet the challenge. The great thing about bacteria is you might, only have to wait a week for that to happen.
1: Uh, so in our bodies, who do you think eats first? Or like, what do you th- what do you think the dynamic of, you know, if I eat a banana, who's eating the banana first? Or is it like a passing back and forth between my digestive cells and my bacteria? Like, what do you
2: think happens? Well, I think, again, as, as with every scientific question, which can be easily posited, it's not easy always to answer it, but in the upper reaches of the GI tract, the simple sugars in your diet are probably being absorbed pretty quickly by you. So you're probably getting first dibs at that. And there aren't that many bacteria in the upper reaches of gut. The small intestine actually has relatively few bacteria. But once you hit the colon, I mean, most of the colonocytes, the the human cells that line the colon, they actually feed off things like butyrate, which are end products of bacterial metabolism. So there, the bacteria are definitely getting to the table first and you're picking up the scraps. So it depends on where you are. It's a very symbiotic relationship. I mean, you know, one place you win the bacteria, well, you win the bacteria, lose, is is probably a poor way of putting it. But in another place, the bacteria feed first and then they feed you. You know, you also generate mucus and and bacteria can digest that mucus. And it's just a whole ecosystem going on in there.
1: Yeah, it's weird. What what do you think of the idea of, um, you know, in the future, getting your... uh your Microbiome completely sequenced every six months, and then you know, if you get sick, um, having it sequenced again and looking at the differences, and then hopefully there'll be technology to, to bring you back to your previous healthy state.
2: Yeah, we, we can do the kind of stock taking bit. You know, we can sequence your microbiome now and, and again tomorrow and again the next day if we like. We can sequence it as often as possible, and we can sequence it before and after some kind of adverse event where maybe you. Become ill, or or maybe you've gone on antibiotic therapy, or you've changed your diet, or you've even moved uh, country, that can cause changes. So we can do the stock taking and see what's changed. I think sometimes we we are too quick to say change away from what we were must be detrimental. Well, of course, in the vast majority of cases, it's you change your diet, your microbiome was then has a different set of environmental conditions, and it looks different. And that's perfectly fine. What we can't really do yet, and that's where our work with bactericins and bacteriophages and other people's work comes in, is we can't kind of shift you back very easily. It's not easy to say, well, you had a microbiome. Firstly, we, we can't right now tell you whether your microbiome is good or bad. We could tell you if it, if it was really, really bad, you know, if it was just post-antibiotic therapy, we could say, oh yeah, that's that's a fairly damaged-looking microbiome. But in general, we can say my microbiome is more diverse than yours. And you could say, well, is that better? I said, well, it depends. Maybe I have a more diverse diet than you and I need a more diverse microbiome, but you don't need a more diverse microbiome because you have a more narrow diet or, you know, so we're guessing really as to what's the best and the worst type of microbiome to have. So what we really need to get to is a point where we can start to pinpoint, you know, balances, ratios of bacteria or maybe in the perfect scenario in actual individual bacteria where we say you know you're, you really are better off not having that bacteria really not having that function and if we can intervene to eliminate it or knock it down or you know even knock it back tenfold you will see an improvement to your health that's the kind of ambition
1: but what about it from a metabolome standpoint do you think that would at least give us a um, all right your microbiome at least needs to provide you these 46 substances and if it does that it can do it many ways but you'll be quote-unquote healthy like do we know how to even find this baseline
2: well the fact that you exist means you're getting everything that you absolutely need you're getting all your essential uh, nutrients anyway whether that's through your diet or through bacterial metabolism of your diet metabolomes are like microbiomes and are like viromes which is what we call the bacterial viruses in, in the Got or in any particular environment, they're so complicated that we again we can tell when something is looks really bad, looks really wrong. But it's very hard to discriminate between two very, very complex entities and say, well, that one looks better than another. We have lots of terms for it. We have diversity, richness, um, different terms, mathematical formula we can apply. And we have kind of dogma and truisms that. The richer your microbiome, the more diverse it is, the better. But I don't really subscribe to that. I think I, I wrote a paper recently, which was titled, You Have the Microbiome You Deserve. And that's really my point is that, you know, you have the microbiome you deserve from your life to this point. And for me to say I think it's the wrong one would be, you know, quite a stretch with the, with our current level of knowledge.
1: Oh, so, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think some of the uh, the near term insights are in the microbiome that you're you're headed towards? Like, do you have a sense that you're getting close to understanding certain aspects of it, or do you think it's just who knows and you're, you're far off?
2: Yeah, I think we're at a very exciting point in microbiome science, but also a kind of a really difficult point. That what we do largely now is we use metagenomics, and I'm sure you you know that this is just taking a sample, whether it's a fecal sample or a biopsy sample or a luminal sample from from a human if we're studying the gut, and we just sequence essentially everything in it. And then we map those sequences back to big databases and they, they tell us who was in there. And they tell us to a fairly high degree as well. If we do real shotgun metagenomics, they tell us what the capabilities of the microbes in our gut. Are, you know, that we'll see, oh, look, there is a gene in there that produces a protein that can break down bile or that can chew up mucus. What we don't really know until we do metatranscriptomics is, is that gene switched on? What bacterium is that gene actually located in? We can sometimes tell that sometimes we can't. So it's a really, really complicated time, but it's really exciting because you get fabulous figures and pictures and you get overwhelming amounts of data you get terabytes of data from these experiments and you can have fun sitting at your computer sitting at a you know using these bioinformatic algorithms to generate figures and hypotheses and you can test them but we really need to get past that i think we're need to get back much more towards growing these individual bacteria and testing their functionality testing them in model systems testing them in in contact with their other microbes and in contact and this is where we're really uh pushing far in contact with their viruses with their bacterial viruses i sometimes say you know if we were to and i I apologize for all the anthropomorphisms here but if if you were to study rabbits in a laboratory setting and these rabbits have been in the laboratory for you know generations and you were asked to to say, well, look at the phenotype of the rabbit, look at its features, which are obviously all there because of its genotype, but because of its genome, and tell me what they're doing. You'd probably say, well, you know, I see the rabbits have very large ears, so they obviously have to have sensitive hearing. They must communicate with each other a lot. That's my interpretation of large ears, or, you know, they're very powerful legs. They must have to beat other rabbits to food, so they need to run faster than other rabbits. And they produce very large litters. I, I You know I, I think that might be because they maybe they get sick a lot or something and they you know not many survive or something. But all you have to see is a rabbit out in the wild being chased by a fox and immediately you know okay that's why it's got the big ears, the powerful legs and large litters because it's prey for these predators which are very good at killing it. You take the um, same rabbit and you, you leave it loose in Australia. You know there were what, 24 rabbits left loose in Australia in the mid-1800s. And there, by the early part of this century, there were 10 billion rabbits in Australia because they have no predators. So we take bacteria out of a setting where they have multiple predators, the bacterial viruses. We grow them in test tubes where they have no competitors like growing rabbits in Australia. And then we study their behavior and think we understand them. But you can only understand a bacterium, a rabbit, a human, any organism in its proper context. And I think we're taking bacteria away from their context. And we're also relying on, you know, these meta-omics tools, which are fascinating. We need to get back towards growing these things in complex communities in the lab and really unraveling what they're doing to each other, with each other, and for each other. I
1: know that's a good idea. I've heard that a certain bacteria or a lot of bacteria can't be cultured. Um, You know, why do you think that is, is what you're saying point towards that?
2: Yeah, I think some bacteria certainly have never been cultured. I'm sure all bacteria are capable of being cultured, but it's a huge effort to try and uh, grow a bacteria that's never been grown before from, you know, an environment where there are thousands if not millions of bacteria already present. So finding the right conditions to just pick out those few bacteria is very difficult. People like Trevor Lawley in, in um, the UK and, and on the Welcome campus, they've done an amazing job. You know, they they cultured hundreds of what were previously called unculturable bacteria just by sheer effort. So I think there's probably no such thing as an unculturable bacteria, but maybe some of them can only be cultured as part of fairly complex webs. You know, that bacteria A can digest something and produce something that bacteria B can consumed that produces something the bacteria C can use, which then provides something back to bacterium A. So you may need to, they may only grow if they're present in complex communities. While we as microbiologists are always trying to purify things. So we can name them, put them in the freezer and say, that's an E. coli, I've got it. I've captured it if you like. Some of these probably won't be capturable. And
1: how do you think that they exist in, in the gut? Do you think they're mostly in biofilm format or do you think that they're free
2: living? a lot of them are, are grow in the mucus, which is a kind of a biofilm. You know, they're, they're in spatial, they're locked spatially, if you like, into a, a certain slot, but that mucus will slough off and will eventually get carried out in the feces. So they, they need to be able to grow and move and um, constantly, you know, reestablish themselves. There's no safe environment in there. You know, there's, there's very few bacteria right up against the epithelial cells or the cells lining the gut. Because that's a that is a barrier that you know the mucus barrier is very hard for them to get through. So I think they're constantly growing and moving and, and reoccupying and recolonizing regions within the gut, but they are doing it in, probably in very tight proximity to other bacteria, which is more akin to a biofilm type situation.
1: I know this is gross, but do you know anyone that's studying you know the composition of, of feces like? from the center outwards and looking at the different bacteria present, you know, like a 3D look, and maybe that would tell you about the composition of the gut.
2: Yeah, people are, you know, people are doing incredible kind of single cell things now with, you know, advanced microscopy and advanced uh, single cell sequencing and and so on, single cell transcriptomics, where you can actually see, you know, that what the behavior of individual cells are. And, you know, it is gross, but if you did a cross section of a, a fecal sample. Some of it's on the outside in contact with oxygen. Some of it's completely anaerobic. In the center, there's going to be little areas of variation within it. You know, so to think of it as just a homogeneous thing, uniformly distributed with bacteria, it would be a huge mistake.
1: You know, we're, we're getting closer to the end. Uh, just a few more questions. So in regards to in regards to phage, we haven't talked much about it. Um, I don't know what's, what's curious or interesting about the interactions of phage. You said that, I guess, you know, all over Earth, they call what, 50% of all bacteria every, every, every two, two days. days. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. How do we have a persistent gut? I've seen, you know, from looking at microbiome samples and studies that people's guts tend to be pretty persistent unless something major mm-hmm. happens to them. So if phage are killing so many bacteria. There's such turnover what allows it to be so persistent over, you know, weeks and months and years.
2: I think it's actually, it's not a conundrum so much as a necessity. The ecological theory would suggest that the only uh, way of maintaining a stable complex community is one with predators. You can't have a stable complex community composed of friends. It just doesn't work. You need predators to get stability and complexity. If you want to describe the microbiome, stability and complexity are the two words that will come first to your mind. And so we actually need these predators. If a prey is left unchecked, then, of course, it it may dominate. If if you have no phage present, it's likely that everyone's gut would contain largely just the bacteria that can grow the most quickly. But, of course, if you're growing most quickly, there's more of you around. And then a phage has a much easier task of kind of knocking you back down into um, some kind of reasonable number. And once you drop below a certain number, the phage find it more difficult to move from one bacteria to another so the bacteria can begin to emerge again. So again, to anthropomorphize everything, you know, if if lions just simply killed every antelope in a a particular setting, then pretty soon the lions would die out as well because they'd, they'd have just killed everything. It's very important that enough antelope can escape and and begin and still um, maintain a population, but it's very important that population is is kept on, even for the antelope, because if there were no lions, the antelopes would just keep breeding, they'd eat every blade of grass, and then they'd be in trouble. So I think this is a relationship that is absolutely essential and core to maintaining stability and complexity is the fact that we have predators.
1: So if I'm able to look at the... um the amount of a certain bacteria in my gut, uh, I guess it would track opposite to the phage population, right? Or some of the phage, they would, they'd wax and wane as the amount of that bacteria waxes and wanes, right? They'd go into a, like a, a heavy feeding stage, they'd cull it back, then they would, you know, slow down, then the bacteria would grow again, then they'd come attack it again. I guess you'd probably yeah, that, see that dynamic, right? I
2: and mean, that's been the kind of dogma for many years, but I think that's largely based on the way bacteriophage behave in a test tube in the lab. And that's, you know, that's exactly the way they would behave. You get these waves of counter resistance, and and the phage evolving, and then the bacteria becoming resistant, and then the phage becoming, overcoming the resistance. But in the gut, what we actually see is is more of a kind of steady state. And I think that's probably real, because again, if you think about the lions and the antelopes, if, if humans weren't involved and we weren't destroying environments, it probably reached some kind of stable ratio of one lion to a hundred antelopes or whatever it would be. We wouldn't suddenly see a huge, you know, burst of lions and a big decrease in the antelopes and then it going the other way around. See something pretty steady. And that's actually what we see. We see that phage against particular bacteria, phage and their bacterial hosts tend to kind of coexist at pretty high levels for both of them, which of course is in both their evolutionary interests. So it's not surprising that that's been selected for over billions of years
1: yeah i just didn't know if there's any more sophistication to the you know bacteria versus phage dynamics
2: oh i think there is yeah we've been studying you know individual human guts for over a year where we take a sample every month and sequence both the bacteria and the bacteriophages of bacterial viruses and we try and analyze them to a pretty fine degree and we look for the correlations and correspondence between bacteria and their hosts. And what we, we see exactly what I've just said, we see a pretty stable scenario. Of course, you see fluctuations, but those fluctuations might result from, you know, external perturbations like change in diet or medication or antibiotics or something. But in general, there's a pretty close relationship. You know, if, if all a bacteria had to do was become resistant to a phage once, and then the phage would simply disappear because it would have no host, then there wouldn't probably be any phage around. You know, it's probable that the fitness cost of trying to become resistant to all the phages in your environment is just too high. And it's much more economic to sacrifice a percentage of the cells that you will generate as you replicate to bacteriophages, rather than try and really become Completely impervious to bacteria, to all bacteriophages. That's obviously not turned out to be a good evolutionary strategy.
1: Is anyone able to, I mean, sequence the phageome, you know, in our guts and look at the dynamics there? I mean, it seems like it seems like Russian nesting dolls. You know, we have uh, our oh. cells, we have the microbiome. You know, the bacteria. Then within each bacteria, they have their own phageome. But I guess it, it probably ends there. But you know, has anyone oh. been able to look at, at virome dynamics?
2: Well, you know, Jonathan Swift said something about, you know, everyone has fleas and fleas that prey upon them and fleas that prey upon them. And it's, yeah, I don't, I don't think our bacteria are preying on us. I think our bacteria and us, we exist in a symbiotic relationship where we benefit from them and they benefit from us. The bacteria and the bacteriophages, I think, are in a symbiotic relationship where both benefit, because if that wasn't true, they wouldn't there, we have studied. I mean, very in, in great depth the viral in individuals. We sequenced them to uh, very great depth and then reassemble their genomes so we can see what viruses are in there. And in a recent study, we looked at ten individuals. We recovered forty thousand individual phages just by looking at their genomes. We didn't. We weren't able to grow them in the lab, but we could look at their genomes. And of those. 260 were already known. 99.6% of the phages we detected in just 10 individuals had never been seen before. So that gives you just a glimpse of the variety and diversity of phages just present in 10 individuals, never mind 7 billion. So we can certainly detect and characterize and sequence the phages in somebody, but knowing the sequences doesn't really tell us very much. Some of these big bacteriophages with their huge genomes of five, six, 700 genes, the vast majority of those genes have no known function. We literally just don't know what they do or what they're capable of doing. So we're really scratching at the surface right now when it comes to bacterial virus. And that's exciting, of course, because it means virtually every experiment you do, you find something new. What do you think is possible
1: in the next you know, three to five years? And then what do you think will be possible in about 20 years?
2: I think the short term will be us targeting very specific bacteria. That's done in in phage therapy. And in Eastern Europe, for 60 or 70 years, they've been using bacterial viruses to try and control infections. So if you're infected with salmonella or listeria or some bacterial pathogen, you can try and add in enough phage against that particular pathogen to try and overwhelm it and really kind of wipe it out in one fell swoop, not give it a chance to evolve. And so we could probably replicate that in the microbiome if we had very particular targets, where if it emerges from some of the incredible research that's going on right now that this bacterium or that one or this combination of bacteria are genuinely bad for you and genuinely cause health problems we can probably look within a small number of years of going in and taking those guys out. So using these really smart weapons to go in and just eliminate a bacterium. For the kind of long term goal that we have of of shaping the microbiome, of really influencing the microbiome, or of understanding how bacteria behave differently in the presence of phase than they do in the absence, and taking advantage of that to maybe not eliminate bacteria but to reprogram them in a particular way that's beneficial to human health that's a little bit longer term i think we're talking short decades i hope it's a very exciting time to be involved in phage biology
1: yeah very interesting so colin what's the best way for listeners to find out more about your
2: work i'd say go to the apc microbiome ireland website you can uh, google apc microbiome ireland and and we'll come up I'm, i'm pretty sure near the top anyway And you can find me within that.
1: Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: No, it's been lovely talking to you, Rich. Thank you. If you
0: like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.